Welcome to the People of Packaging podcast, where we introduce people to the world of packaging and the people of packaging to the world. Here are your hosts, Adam Peek and Ted Tate. Welcome to episode four of the People of Packaging podcast. We'd like to thank everyone for listening so far and ask that you spread the word about this podcast so other people can share in the experiences. In this episode, we interview Brandy Parker of Pearl Fisher in New York City. And uh, as I said before, Brandy has uh, the most interesting job title uh, I've come across in my career. And uh, she's a was a pleasure to interview. Um, very interesting uh, person, but also her journey into this industry was very interesting. So, without further ado, uh, let's get into the interview. This is Ted Tate, People of Packaging podcast, uh, co-host with Adam Peak, and we're here to. Um, expose the world of packaging to people outside the industry by interviewing people within the industry and to show different aspects of packaging and uh, the things it takes to go into creating a package that people take for granted. Mm. With me today is Brandy Parker. Hello, everybody. Brandy is a professional within this packaging industry. Um, and she has a very unique title that I think will be interesting to everyone. So, Brandy, can you please uh, present what your title is to the listeners? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, so, thank you very much, Ted. I'm very glad to be here. My title is Head of Realization, and I work here at Pearl Fisher, New York. And for a lot of reasons, this title is unique, certainly in the industry. I, I think people familiar with the industry could relate it very closely to production director, so that is, uh, you know, that's kind of a similarity, if you will. Um, but sort of to get into what head of realization is, uh, I, I make things real. To just put it really simply, I work closely with the design team to bring things to life because, after all, there are several steps between a designer's idea and concept through to making a physical object. So you bring things to life. Yes. I get paid to realize. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And in order to do what you do, mm-hmm. what, what are some of the things you need to know? Sure. I mean, the, the way I've gotten here has been really organic. And in a lot of ways, I've made my role what it is. So like I said, those familiar with the industry can make it uh, make a similarity to, um, or draw a parallel to rather, a production director. And typically what a production director does is they create production files, mechanical files, things that go from design to print, a file that's ready to print. But what I've done over time is evolve my role to include also materials specifically sustainable materials and structure. Uh, So to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, I think to do my role, you really need to understand how things print. And in packaging, it's a huge world of all different kinds of presses dealing with all different kinds of substrates. So understanding the pros and cons of each of those print processes. And then into materials, it's understanding papers used for labels, you know, 
kind of cardboard you want to use for a carton uh, and you know so forth and understanding in each of those scenarios what the best kind of material is for that kind of package and then finally into structural design while I'm not a structural designer, understanding if we're making a glass bottle for a spirits brand or, or a plastic bottle for personal care or something like this, understanding how those things are molded, created, is an essential part of my job because then I can kind of give a lot of direction or, or help design make some really wise choices through the concept stage. And again, you know, this is kind of unique in what I'm doing because I'm almost bridging between packaging engineers, material scientists, and while I'm not an engineer and I'm not a scientist, I've kind of gained enough knowledge over my almost 20 years of doing this um, to kind of create this unique role. Okay, so you know enough to be dangerous. That's at right. A little bit of everything. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I've always been a proponent of learning more outside your job. Hmm and how your role interacts with other people's functions. Because if you understand how everything works around you, you help to make it work smoothly. Oh, So completely. I've been a big proponent of that. Um, completely. I think efficiency comes from a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. So whether that's looking internally at our own workflows, which I'm obviously very involved in, um, to externally working with clients, you know, we set up a project for our clients and we don't have a template of project. You know, everything is bespoke, everything is custom. So every time we write a proposal for a client, it's unique to them. And so understand how all the pieces work is a really big piece of my job. Great, great. And in terms of your career, uh, mm -hmm. you said you started in print production. Yeah. Um, where did you go to school? Where did I go to school? So this is kind of an interesting story. Well, I think it is. I mean... I'm the world's most interesting person, according to me. Um, <laughs> so I actually grew up in Arkansas, and you can't okay. tell by my accent because I worked really hard not to have one. Wow, yeah. You, yeah. I wouldn't have, I never would have guessed Arkansas. People always guess Chicago, which I don't know how to take that, but I, I profess to have non-regional diction, but that's just me. Um, anyway, so I went to the University of Arkansas, okay. and, you know, public university, Fantastic school, and I majored. I majored in art there, uh, and in our art program, we had to have two emphases. Emphases? How do you say it? Emphases? Works for me. We'll let you edit it. Okay. However, it needs to be. So I had to have two areas of interest. Let's say um, my major area of interest was drawing, and my secondary area of interest was traditional printmaking. Okay. And this was after kind of a lifetime of knowing I wanted to do something in art. Uh, but my parents were always like, how are you going to make money at it? And so the term at the time was commercial artist, which is dating me a little bit. Um, so I knew I wanted to be some manner of commercial artist, but the problem was my university at the time didn't have any kind of commercial art program. So I took a fine arts program. And with that major... I learned obviously a lot about sort of the classical areas of art and drawing and, and color theory, things like this. But in my printmaking class, I understood different methods of printmaking. My favorite was lithography. So using traditional Bavarian limestone, drawing with a greasy crayon, uh, screen printing, intaglio, all of these things. And what I've found in my current job over time is how directly related traditional printmaking is to modern printmaking. 
And I think over time, because I have had different jobs and have not had a direct route to packaging, which we can talk about in a minute, I figured out that actually things like intaglio are directly related to rotogravure, for example. Traditional lithography is very much like modern lithography. And traditional like lino or woodcut is related to flexography. The print methods are the same. The methods by which you create the prints obviously are very different, mm -hmm. one completely by hand, one by machine. But having that foundational knowledge has actually carried me further than I could have guessed, and all of that was by accident. Well, I don't <laughs> believe in accidents, <laughs> but okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, University of Arkansas? Yeah, go Hogs. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> I, I, that's still throwing me. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you're in New York now. So yeah. from Arkansas, you graduate. Yeah. First job out of school? So my first job out of school was at a sign shop, actually. Okay. Um, there in Northwest Arkansas, um, near the school. I lived there for several years after graduating. But my first job was at a sign shop. And what was cool about the sign shop is I got to go up in a bucket truck and experience, you know, installing signs and things. But fundamentally, that's where I understood, that's where I learned about vector art, which is an integral piece of packaging as well. Um, and that's where I understood sort of typography and started to understand letter spacing and things like that. These are things I wasn't exposed to in school because I didn't go through a graphic design program. There just really wasn't one okay. at the time. So the sign shop was kind of another stepping stone. And then I worked in advertising for a while. And then I worked in the tourism industry. I worked for the city of Bentonville, actually, which is the oh, home of Walmart. Yep. And I was actually the director of advertising there. And my job was to bring tourism to Bentonville, which at the time was a town of about 10,000 people. And they wanted tourism. Yeah, because people would come um, as part of Walmart. There's a Walmart museum there. I would highly recommend it, actually, if you've never been. Um, so again, I'm almost tangentially sort of cir circling packaging. Because in the Walmart museum, there's a bunch of old packaging from the 50s and 60s, which is when the F Walton Five and Dime would have come into being. Okay. And I think it was founded in this... Yeah, I don't remember exactly the year it was founded, but they have old examples of what Walmart used to carry in there, which is really, really fascinating. Um, so, I, so I worked uh, doing that for a little while, kind of hit my limit there. Okay. And actually, my wife and I decided to move to New York um, about 16 years ago. Okay. And she was going to be an actress, and I was going to be a studio musician. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so you're not a studio musician, I'm obviously. Not, I'm not. Did she end up being an actress? No. Okay. <laughs> it's good to have a plan. You know, you, you shoot high when you're in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you aim high, you throw something at the wall, see what sticks. And I think for both of us, we got a healthy dose of reality when we moved to New York. New York has a funny way of doing that to people. Mm-hmm. You know... <laughs> I've always been somebody who goes out there and tries to find, get what I want. Mm -hmm. Call myself a hustler, if you will. And my hustle battery was charged all the way up. So when we got to New York, within two weeks I was working. And I was a freelance desktop publisher. Now, 
keep in mind, I had no idea that the industry of packaging even existed. Up to that point. Up to that point. But I've been doing all these things along the way that would help me later in my career. Mm-hmm. So I get to New York and I start working immediately. I'm freelancing around doing different things. And the people I'm freelancing for hook me up with a full-time uh, interview, uh, an interview for a full-time gig. And so I went there, and it was a packaging agency. And I was like, I had no idea what packaging was. I just thought it was what you got in the mail when you ordered something <laughs> from somewhere. At the time, Amazon really wasn't even a big thing. Again, I'm dating myself. Right. Um, so I had a great interview, and frankly, my boss there just saw something in me. She saw the possibilities. I think she liked my passion and curiosity and gave me a chance. And it was for a junior production artist. And I had no idea what that was. And based on my history, she just put two and two together and said, well, let's try it. Um, And that started my packaging career. And it kind of was an accidental... I know you don't believe in accidents, but let's just say it was unplanned. Um, you know, I'm a musician on the side, so my hope was to, to make more of that. And I thought the big city, being a small town girl, mm-hmm. I thought the big city would be the ultimate chance to do that. But what I found out is that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an expensive place to live. It's an expensive place to live. need a job. I mean, I was right. paying literally three times for rent what I was paying in Arkansas. And that reality was huge. And so that's why my hustle battery was charged all the way up because I needed to get out there and start making that money. Um, so I did a few studio gigs, but I didn't get paid for them because music- musicians are a little bit flaky. So sort of focusing again on art, which is what I went to school for, and seeing what I could do with that kind of career really helped me get my feet in- on the ground in New York faster than anything else. And it just propelled me. And I worked for that agency for four years, which in the agency world is like 50 years. Yeah, that's a, you, you learn a lot in four years, though. It's fast-paced. Yeah. And I've just kind of moved up from there. I went from junior to senior in two years. I went from senior to director in two years. And then I went from director to head of realization in another four. So my, my propulsion has been really, really quick. But I think it's a testament to... I think the energy that I put behind what I do, the passion behind what I do, and obviously you have a podcast for people of packaging. There's a reason that people of packaging like to talk about what they do because I think, well, two things. One, not many people understand the details of it. They understand the intricacies of it. And two, everyone I've spoken to that works in this industry is passionate. Mm-hmm. I don't care what they're doing, especially designers. That's easy. They're, they're definitely passionate. What the work they do is the most visible but for the, those of the rest of us, either in engineering side, manufacturing side, even in the production side, you know, we're kind of the, the dudes behind the curtains. Very true. I think you kind of touched on it already, but we, we ask everyone, what did you want to do as a kid? Oh, okay. Yeah, I kind of jumped the gun on that. That's all right. Um, That's all right. You know, I've been drawing since I was a little kid. I can remember asking my parents um, if they would show me how to draw things, and now neither of my parents are artistic. So they would always be a little bit annoyed, but they would do it. And over time, I would, you know, my, my mother had a, a strong connection to the local library. She sort of emphasized the importance of having library cards. So we went to the library every week. And so I started um, getting books on drawing. And 
there was a, a series of books at the time in like the late 70s, early 80s um, called Draw 50 whatever. Mm-hmm. So it might be Draw 50 Trucks or Draw 50 Faces, something like that. And, there, and I forget the author, but I used to love finding those books and our library had the full series mm-hmm. of them. And so it was literally just page after page of how to draw different faces and vehicles and just whatever you can think of. Um, so I was always really interested in kind of reproducing 3D life in the in 2D. Wow. There was some kind of connection there, and, and definitely with color and exploring how colors work together. That's just something that's been a part of my life forever. Um, music has always been a big part of my life as well, but I could say that I, at least in my early sort of childhood, spent a lot more time with art. It just felt the most accessible. Um, you know, there's a little bit of barrier when you start to learn instruments. It feels like there's there's a long time between when you are learning, starting to learn the instrument and when you feel proficient. So mm-hmm. there's a, a huge chunk of my time in life where, I, you know, you could just sit down with a pencil and draw something. So that, in that way, that accessibility meant that I kind of focused a lot of energy there. And like I mentioned, when I went to college, <laughs> it was funny because I considered majoring in music when I went there. But at the time, and this is again before the internet, mm-hmm. the way that you chose your major is you chose a line to get in. And there was a, at the, um, what do you call it? At the... Registrar? Yeah, sort of the first day kind mm-hmm. of... Um, oh, orientation. Orientation, that's yes. it. At ori- Why couldn't I think of that word? At orientation, there were several tables, and each table represented a major. And you could go to undeclared if you wished, but that line was really long. <laughs> of course. Or you could go to, you know, obviously anything else. It's, it's a liberal arts college, so they had a little bit of everything. And I saw the art line. There was three people in that line. I saw the music line. There was like 50 people in that line. So I got in the art line. <laughs> You're just not patient. <laughs> and that's literally how I chose my major. Wow. Again, I think it was accessibility. Mm-hmm. And in that moment... It manifested as convenience and impatience, but it was accessibility. But I think the other piece of it was I knew going into that major, and and of course, once I got more information about it, there weren't many people in that track. So the individual attention that I would then get from professors and the involvement I would get made me feel more like home. Because I went to, you know, I I grew up in a small town. I went to a small school. My class sizes were relatively small. I was afraid of going to this big university where there were some classes that had 200 people in them. Mm -hmm. And this idea that I could stay on a track that I was already interested in, but still sort of make something feel a little bit more like home, you know, that made the most sense to me. And so I did that. And... Like I said, the, the rest is kind of history, but it, it's not been... There's so much about this industry of packaging, mm-hmm. especially the discipline of production, the discipline of making, that there isn't a clear-cut line. There isn't a clear-cut route for you as a student. Certainly here in the city, um, you know, I'm an adjunct professor at FIT, for example, they have a major for packaging, and there's a very clear route for people who want to be designers mm-hmm. in packaging. 
and you know places um, on the East Coast, like Clemson, for example, mm -hmm. there's a very clear route for packaging engineers, but there's not a clear route for production. Um, you know, and that's allowed me some freedom of kind of cultivating this role as I've as I've described it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, for those of you listening that want to get into what I do, maybe you love design, but you're not a designer, but you want to be, you want to be in a relationship with design. Production is a fantastic way to go. But I'm sorry to tell you that there's no class, there's no there's no set of studies. You just need to be curious and almost collect a range of skill sets. Um, that's the best advice I can give, and I wish that there was better advice. It seems like there's clearer routes to the role in the UK, for example. Mm -hmm. A lot of really fantastic, and they call them art workers over there. A lot of really fantastic art workers in the UK. A lot of great skill sets there. I think there's apprenticeship programs and things like that. That's Just does we're missing. We're missing that. We're US. missing that. We don't. We don't have that. Um, and, you know, some of my students, they often ask me, like, how I got here and, and how they should proceed. And my best advice is just get out there and apply for those jobs. Right. Because here's the other secret, at least here in New York. The job market, the pool of talent is overflowing with designers. Designers are a dime a dozen. But there aren't any young production people. And... It's an opportunity for those who want to get into the industry because there really isn't a lot of competition. And in some cases, there is no competition. Short lines. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the art major line. There's only three people ahead of you. Well, the, the, the same is true for uh, package engineering as well. Mm. Um, you know, Michigan State pumps out a lot of package, packaging people. But they're not, you know, into the details of actually creating. It's developing a project, the, the nitty gritty of how a design comes together and how it functions mm -hmm. is not easy to find people doing that. Right. So in my role, it's what helped me get there because I was curious. I'm going to start to notice themes mm. between people. And when you said that, it, it resonated right away um, to learn more about you know, digging deeper into packaging. And I, I think for me, that that's what got me to where I am today, is that same curiosity and willingness to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as a manager of a packaging team, when I needed to find recruits, very difficult, mm -hmm. which means that's also a short line yeah. that people need to look into because there are opportunities for technical packaging people. So many opportunities, and I actually didn't realize the same was true for engineers, but it makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, yeah, same, when I go to recruit, you know, it's, it's difficult. And mm -hmm. if I want a broad mix of team from juniors on up, you know, I, there's not much selection. Um, so we have to, you know, we have to curate the people that we bring in. And sometimes I'm kind of convincing designers to move over to the dark side. Right, right, right. Um, and that has helped. That has been successful for me in, in you know years past, but that's that's definitely a harder thing to do than just hiring somebody with the skill set. Right. Well, the skill set also comes with experience, and that's mm -hmm. where it, 
it's hard to find somebody brand new. Mm -hmm. you, you almost have to help mold them. Yeah. You know, you're, you're unique. <laughs> you're unique. Thank you. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a unicorn, but don't tell anybody. I won't. It'll be our secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and it's funny because you keep jumping the gun on the questions I'm going to ask. You already touched on it. Oh, man. So my next thing was going to say, what advice do you have for... Oh, actually, no. Let me phrase it this way. Okay. What advice, knowing what you know now, mm. would you give the younger Brandy? Teenage Brandy. Oh, gosh. So much advice, Ted. So much advice. Um... First of all, I would say you're going to college. That's not an option. Okay. Because there was a time where I didn't want to go to college. I just thought I would just hitchhike my way to the West Coast and, and be a hippie musician like it was 1968 or something. Um, so just get that out of your mind right now because that ain't happening. Also, it's just very unsafe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but back to the topic, I, I think the main advice I would give is stay the course. Keep prioritizing the things that you're interested in. Because there is no clear route really to anything. And I could argue any career, any profession, there might be a prescripted route for some of them. But actually, to be great you kind of have to follow your own route. And, and that is inclusive of the things that you love. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost by combining the things that you love is how you figure out where you want to take your life. And it's just so happened for me, it's ended up this way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would change that for the world. And it is amalgamation of all these things that I love to do. Even inclusive of music, I think music has helped me in my career. Um, it's, it's almost another dimension of the experience of life. And I think any kind of way that you open your own eyes and ears to life helps you in, in whatever you're doing, you know? And I think for me, I mean, that's really abstract and kind of, I promise I'm not high right now, but, you know... <laughs> I think it's true. All of your interests add up to the person that you are and make you better at your job. When people think that they have to either put something on pause or only focus on one thing, I think that's where the missteps happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when you kind of fall flat. You know, the, the, the person that you are coming from your background, for example, you know, having been an engineer, also being involved in music, now being more in sales, I would have to think that a combination of all of those things have given you the tools to be in the position that you're in now. You have so much more to talk to people about than just the thing you're there to sell them. Mm -hmm. And that makes for, you know, a compelling relationship, for example. You know, when I'm, when I'm looking for people to hire, for example, so to take a step back and give mm -hmm. people advice, the first thing I look at when I'm going to hire somebody is their personality. Because you can't teach personality. And if that personality sucks, you can't change it. <laughs> so you need to be interesting before I'm going to hire you. I don't care how skilled you are. Because I've had the most skilled people working for me 
And if they are hard to work with, we, we can't do it. It doesn't work. And so to kind of ladder back to everything, I think, you know, if you're an interesting person, you'll go pretty far in this life. I don't care what you want to do. That's great advice. <laughs> because, no, seriously, because, you know, your teachers will tell you you need to learn from books. Yep. You go to school, you need to learn from books. Yep. Life skills, you have to live, mm-hmm. right? You have to focus on, because quite honestly, you're very interesting, but you're more interesting because it doesn't seem to be about you. Mm. But the advice you're giving about being an interesting person, mm. um, people don't realize it, that yeah. it, it goes a long way. Yeah. And I've interviewed people that on paper had the qualifications, but... I could not work with them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just from the door. It was like, uh, I want to make X and I want to pr- get promoted in two years. And, and, and I want, and I want, and I want, and I, I just say, what are you bringing to the table? Are you here to get promoted? Or are you here to help build the company? So we all grow together. Like what, what, what is your purpose? You know, if it's all just about you, okay, that's fine. We all have some selfish motivations. You know, you want to excel. I get that. But if that's what you're leading with, we're kind of not going any further at mm. that point. Yeah. Right? Back to the interview. Uh-huh. I'm enjoying this, by the way. Me too. Current industry trends in packaging. What mm. trends do you see? I love this question. AKA, I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) Okay, so, you know, trends is an interesting concept. And obviously, to give you kind of my spiel from being at Pearl Fisher, the first thing that we would tell you is that we're really not that interested in trends because we think that trends are fleeting. So if you think about the definition of a trend, it's something that's, you know, it's what's hot now but will not be hot in I don't know, a year's time, two years' time. What we're sort of more fundamentally interested in, because we have a whole department here called Futures, and and the job of Futures here at Pearl Fisher is to look at, globally, what are macro-cultural shifts? Okay, what does that mean? That means, on a huge scale, what are shifts that we're seeing in people's behaviors and people's preferences? Um, So it's a little bit psychology, it's a little bit anthropology, Um, but when you look at something and how it's shifting across, you know, a lot of people, those are things that tend to stick around five, 10 years, let's say. Um, so I guess to answer that question, instead of looking at trends, I think the big macrocultural shifts we're seeing is, you know, brand more and more brands want to be lifestyle brands, for example. And not every brand can be a lifestyle brand. But what we think is um, brands can help design the lives we want to live. So if we look at our individual lifestyles and we look at our relationship to brands, and again, this is brands, in this case, we're talking about packaging, so brands through packaging. um, We believe that a lot of brands have something to say about how we live. Now that intersects with health, that intersects with beauty, which you obviously know a lot about from a cosmetic standpoint. Um, food and beverage, um, health and wellness, all of these things. Um, so I think that's, that's a major 
um, shift that we're seeing. Brands don't want to just be a package anymore. They don't want to just be a product that you use and then perhaps throw away. There's also this bigger halo of sustainability that's obviously a huge, huge topic. And I think for me, I hope it's not a trend. I hope it's around to stay because as, as packaging designers, we have a huge responsibility um, to sustainability. Packaging is a major contributor to the waste that we're seeing in places where it really shouldn't be, but certainly to the waste that's going to landfill. Um, so, you know, those things combined, it's almost the, the lives that we want to live, how humans are living, it's becoming more and more important that brands are contributing to the positive um, trajectory of that, um, that they're not contributing to more waste, that they're, they're making lives easier, that, that they're encompassing um, kind of the whole life that you want to live. So I think that's, that's, that's a major uh, shift. It's one that's been taking up a lot of time in my mind too, because I've been doing talks on sustainability. Just a couple of weeks ago, I gave a, a talk at a panel um, at How Design Live, um, yeah. and it was the future of sustainability and packaging. It was a very, very interesting panel where um, myself and three other people kind of got to give our points of view, and then there was a QA session afterwards. And what I loved about the QA session is there's a mix of brands, you know, some of our clients even were in the audience, designers, people from all walks of life in terms of branding and, and design. And they all had a lot of, of questions about packaging and sustainability. It's a huge, huge topic. And it was so interesting to even stay an hour later than our talk was supposed oh, wow. to go because people were there wanting to ask all the questions. Um, so yeah, those, those are the hottest, the hottest things, I think. Okay, so are those the things that guide you in your decision-making in design? Absolutely. You know, Pearlfish has been great in the history of our existence. Um, sustainability has been at the heart of what we've done. It just hasn't been really talked about. It's been kind of table stakes for us. Mm -hmm. But as of a couple of years ago, we, we codified it in the form of um, what we call our manifesto for designing sustainable brands, which we've called lightweighting. And lightweighting is a term for us to describe our approach to sustainability and design. But it kind of, it goes further than that. You know, keeping in mind... It's, it's a broader subject than just materials and packaging. It, it's, it is about the lives that we want to live. Um, lightweighting is literal. It can be about using less materials or lightweighting the materials we're using. But it's also figurative. If you think about it, all of us in this room are consumers. Mm -hmm. All of us listening to this podcast are, are consumers and maybe also work for brands. So we get the privilege of having the experience of both. But historically, sustainability has been kind of unequally burdened on the consumer. In other words, the consumers have held most of the responsibility. You need to recycle better. You need to understand it better. It's your job to throw this away. But the brands haven't really been taking their share of the responsibility, let's say. Now, you're seeing more and more brands take that responsibility, but lightweighting is about helping brands to figure out how to take that responsibility. So it's about shifting weight. It's right. about lightweighting the consumers. Okay, that's very, very interesting approach. Thanks. I like it. I like it too. I think it's working. Um, like I said, you know, we kind of kicked it off a couple of years ago and, and through 
various projects, we've been able to really activate what that means. So it's been, it's been successful so far. That's awesome. Thanks. If we had a crystal ball today, mm -hmm. where do you see the world of packaging in the future? Hmm. That's a funny question. I love crystals, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the future of packaging is less packaging. I think it's figuring out how to stop the perpetuation of our convenience culture. You know, in trying to make our lives easier through technology, through various means, we've made our lives more convenient. And that's good. But what convenience has done has created, it, it's created more opportunities to make waste. And what I mean by that is if you look at our on-the-go culture, if you look at single-serve packaging, if you look at all of this stuff meant to make our lives easier, it's meant using more materials and creating more waste. And now I'm drawing a very big line between those two, but hear me out. Mm -hmm. I know that currently the situation we're in from a sustainability perspective, this model of convenience in our life is not sustainable. I'm not saying our lives should be made less convenient, but I think there's got to be a big behavioral shift. And therefore, I think a different use of packaging, a smarter use of packaging, not using durable materials that stay around for hundreds of years in right. single-use items. Right. Using those materials, certainly, they're good for a lot of things, but using them in proportion of what they're meant to stick around and do. And I think what that means is looking at a model like TerraCycle, mm -hmm. they just launched a loop, yep, loop in a few test markets. They're still using plastic. They're, they're using metals. They're using all kinds of materials that are incredibly durable, expensive. Mm -hmm. But the consumer doesn't own those things. They're meant to stick around and be reusable. But it's interesting. It's like looking at a model like Rent the Runway for Clothes where we're walking away from owning things, buying things, and keeping things. And in that way, what I think the future of packaging is, is actually not having any of it, especially in our homes. Or if we do have it, we send it back off, or it gets refilled and reused. Um, so I think that's one way. Um, otherwise, I think using more natural materials that return safely to the earth, whether through composting or biodegrading, you know, some, some manner of kind of going away as quickly as you use it, mm. um, which I think, too, could be interesting, an interesting model where packaging doesn't stick around. It, it essentially makes itself go away. It doesn't exist. Um, so, yeah, that's the long answer. Okay. No, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> answer. Uh, and, and it's kind of conflicting being, you know, in the world of packaging. Yeah. You're making packages... Part of what we love is creating, you yeah. know, the constant pace. Yeah. But you know what you're making in the end isn't good for the world. Right. But it's like a necessary evil because without good packaging, products don't get to customers, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, so doing it in a responsible way definitely is 
is the approach that everyone needs to take, and I'm in full agreement with that. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I used to think it was conflicting mm -hmm. um, being in this industry, being in branding and design. Um, but actually, I, I do think it's it is the responsible way. But I but I also think that there's still so much merit in the romance. There's still so much merit in the brand experience when it comes to the consumers, and I don't think we should design that out. Mm -hmm. I just think it's going to take a different form than a water bottle on a shelf in the future. I hope it takes a different form than a water bottle on a shelf. Brand experience will come through other, other means, other touch points, and um, you know maybe it is more buying in bulk. Maybe it is you know all these other options that are maybe on the table, even things maybe I haven't thought of. So there's still room for what we do. It just may take a different form in the future. And wherever there's going to be changes, there's going to be opportunities. That's right. So. That's right. You need to realize that. <laughs> Y'all need to realize. Realize. <laughs> Great. So I've asked all the questions mm -hmm. I've needed to ask. Mm -hmm. You've been a great participant in, uh, right, in this discussion. So the best way to contact you for speaking engagements? If, if people want to contact me, I think the best way is if they go to www.pearlfisher.com slash contact. Um, they can reach out to briefnyc at pearlfisher.com uh, from an email standpoint. I think those are the best ways. That way a lot of people get the message and we can hopefully hook up. Okay. Yep, that sounds good. Well, I want to thank you for your time. Thank and you for so much. sharing your story with the uh, listeners interested in packaging. And um, we will be back with another interesting person at some time in the very near future. But I, I would definitely want to thank you for your time. Thanks again, Ted. I appreciate it. We've, we've had a great time here. And I say we in the third person. <laughs> because it's the royal we. Anyway, thanks again. <laughs> Signing out. Thank you every time again. This has been fun. This concludes episode four of the podcast. We'd like to thank Brandy Parker and the people at Pearl Fisher, New York. Please join us for episode five in a couple of weeks, where Adam will be interviewing Dr. Hurley from Clemson School of Packaging. In the meantime, please check out our previous episodes and other podcasts in the Business and Bourbon Network. Until next time.